Senator Lindsey Graham looks like he's next up on the witness list. The lead starts right now. Crucial witness. Prosecutors in Georgia spelling out why they want the Republican lawmaker to appear before a special grand jury as this latest case, investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election, takes a new turn. And power move. Russia threatening to take Europe's largest nuclear power plant offline as its standoff with Ukraine fuels fear of a nuclear disaster. Plus, Apple alert the tech giant warns a security flaw could allow iPhones and iPads to get hacked. What should you do right now to protect your devices? Welcome to Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead and the six words sounding new alarms in Trump world. Documents unsealed by a federal judge related to that FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago include the phrase willful retention of national defense information. Willful retention of national defense information. Legal experts tell CNN that phrase sharpens the focus on the former president as a possible subject of the Justice Department's criminal investigation. In another Trump-related investigation, the one down in Georgia, a federal judge there just ruled that she will not put on hold the ruling that Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina must appear before that Fulton County special grand jury next week. Prosecutors said in a filing today that Graham's testimony is crucial to the investigation into Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the election in that state. Graham has argued that his calls to Georgia election officials were entirely appropriate as part of his role on the Senate Judiciary Committee, he argued, though Georgia Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger may feel quite differently, as he suggested in November 2020. I asked if the ballots could be matched back to the voters, and then I I got the sense it implied that uh, then you could throw those out uh, for any really would look at the counties with the highest um, fr- frequent error of uh, signatures. So that's that's the impression that I got. It was just an implication that uh, uh, look hard and see how many ballots you could throw out. Look hard and see how many ballots you could throw out. CNN's Jessica Schneider starts off our coverage today with a closer look at the new legal arguments that Trump allies are attempting to push to discredit these widening investigations. New information revealed in documents related to the Mar-a-Lago search, sharpening the focus on former President Trump as a possible subject of the criminal probe. The application for the search warrant unsealed Thursday reveals that among the crimes DOJ is investigating includes the willful retention of national defense information, language that could point to the role of Trump, who would have been authorized to possess national defense documents while in office, but not once he departed the White House and moved to Mar-a-Lago. The papers don't specify Donald Trump in particular. You usually, as a prosecutor, don't specify a person, but we can sort of try to figure out what they mean by the words they did give us. Trump's former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, who's a target of another criminal probe out of Georgia investigating election fraud, he lashed out defending the former president. And now they want to make him responsible for having taken classified documents and preserved them. Really, if you look at the Espionage Act, It's not really about taking the documents. It's about destroying them or hiding them or uh, giving them to the enemy. Right. It's not about taking them and putting them in a place that's roughly as safe as they were in in the first place. 
Trump and his team continue to push publicly for releasing the full search warrant affidavit, which would have a lot more detail. But they didn't file any motions to that effect in court. A source tells CNN that remains a possibility, while Trump is continuing to hunt for additions to his legal team, including someone with experience in Florida. One thing I did like today, and I have to be positive about this, he said, look, there is, if it's redacted too much, I'm going to take it and I'm going to redact it myself. Since the search, threats against FBI agents have reached unprecedented levels, a source tells CNN. That's why a House oversight panel is calling on social media companies to take immediate action and identify the number of threats made on their platform since August 8th, the day of the search. The demand comes in a letter to social media companies, including Meta, Twitter and TikTok. And when it comes to that affidavit, prosecutors now have less than one week to submit proposed redactions to the judge so he can decide what might be released publicly. It will likely be a tall task for a DOJ that has repeatedly said any proposed redactions would be so extensive it would make the affidavit devoid of content. Jake? Hmm. Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. White House officials have privately expressed Deep concern over the classified materials taken to Mar-a-Lago, including some documents that are meant to be viewed only in secure government facilities. CNN's Caitlin Collins has these new details for us today. Caitlin, what are Biden administration officials telling you? Yeah, Jake, well, these officials aren't really saying much publicly. As you've noticed in recent days, they've been pretty tight-lipped about this search of Mar-a-Lago over here at the White House. But what we are learning is that they're actually quite concerned about the idea that all of this classified information was taken to the former president's private residence. It was kept, in most of it, in a basement-level room, a storage facility where it has been for the last several months as the National Archives and Justice Department has tried to get its hands on it. And as these developments and new details have emerged, including what they took from Mar-a-Lago when those FBI agents were there last week, there has become more and more concern inside the White House about the idea about this classified information being there, including some of it, Jake, so secure that you were only supposed to view it in these secure government facilities. And so what we've heard from officials, you know, that they don't know exactly, of course, what was taken there. They've only seen the inventory list that we've seen from this unsealed search warrant that was released by a judge just a week ago, is they do have a number one concern, which is really that potentially this classified information being there and out of the hands of intelligence officials who currently work here or inside a secure facility, is that it could reveal sources and methods that the U.S. intelligence community uses to get its information, potentially revealing those sources or the methods and preventing them from being able to use them going forward. And it's become a real concern. And so representatives for the intelligence community have had conversations with Justice Department officials, with congressional intelligence committees about these concerns that they have, Jake. And another thing also is there's a diplomatic aspect of this, because if you look at that inventory list, it also mentioned that there were three pages of information about the French president included in what the FBI took from Trump's resort. That's raised questions, of course, of what exactly that could be. We should note that the French embassy has not commented on that matter. And Caitlin, uh, Republicans who support Trump on Capitol Hill are are really up in arms about this, uh, that raid at Mar-a-Lago. Let's remind our viewers what Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio, the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, told us yesterday about Republican skepticism of both President Biden and Attorney General Garland. Take a listen. In order for them to have credibility, because they already have an unbelievable level of bias, this is President Biden's political rival, perhaps even his, his uh, you know, political opponent, certainly his past political opponent. But you have no evidence and that Attorney Biden General was Garland, involved in this in any way. 
We don't know because Attorney General Garland hasn't told us. It'd be an interesting question for you to ask Garland whether or not he did tell the White House because I've not seen him ask that question or answer it. What is the White House saying uh, about the suggestion Congressman Turner is making there that this is a political vendetta led by President Biden and Attorney General Garland? Well, first thing I would say is that Attorney General Garland has not answered any questions on this matter. He held that rare press conference last week and said he he can't take questions on this. He believes he needs to remain silent for the sake of the investigation beyond what he revealed about them pursuing the release of the search warrant itself. The White House, Jake, on the other hand, has been very clear saying President Biden did not know about this in advance. They say he found out from media reports on Twitter and on cable television when the search was first reported. And so they are very strongly pushing back on the idea that this has any kind of political motivation behind it. They have said that the Justice Department on its own is doing this investigation independently. They've highlighted that. Jake, they've also noted that it was a federal court that approved this search warrant at Trump's house. Then that was based upon the required finding of probable cause. That basically means it wasn't just Garland himself signing off on this, though he did personally sign off on it. It was a court that said that they did believe there was a reason for FBI agents to go to Mar-a-Lago and look and retrieve these documents. And they're, so they're saying, you know, it's not just Biden and Garland basically making this decision, Jake. All right, Kaylin Collins, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois. He's on the January 6th Select House Committee. Congressman, I want to I start right there with what you just heard from your colleague, Congressman Mike Turner, suggesting that the Mar-a-Lago search uh, may have been driven by Garland and Biden because of political vendettas. He acknowledges he doesn't have any evidence to that fact, um, but says that there are questions that need to be answered. He's the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee. What's your response? Yeah, it's always been interesting to me, Jake, because, you know, these people that you've worked with for a long time come out with these theories that you're just like, where did that come from? I mean, you're, you're a very serious person. I, look, Here's what I think happens in a lot of cases. I think this is the FBI situation with the Republicans. You have a lot of members that know Donald Trump is a liar, know he's insane. Uh, and so they stay kind of quiet, but they're a little crosswise with their base because they're not defending Donald Trump hard enough. And then you get this issue like the FBI, and they see that as their outlet where they can fight hard for Trump, make their base happy. And, uh, and I think that's what you're seeing with all these members. The problem is it's really dangerous. I mean, the, our party was outraged when President Obama at one point had said, uh, I forget there was that professor that the police came to his house and he said the police acted stupidly. And he said that before knowing all the details, our party was outraged. Now, just a few short years later, we're leveling accusations that the FBI is somehow in on some deep state plot to take Trump down. And I got to ask you, Jake, if Trump is so tough, if he's so good at everything he does, how has he been such a victim of the deep state so many times? Uh, it, it, because he's not, because he uses victimization as his way out. And it's, it's really frustrating. It's sad to see my party having gone down such a dark path. Congressman Turner also told me he wants the affidavit behind the Mar-a-Lago search released. The Justice Department has until next Thursday to tell the judge how much of that document they need to be redacted. Well, what's your take on this? Is there a danger here that by withholding too much information, that could undermine public faith in the Justice Department even further? Yeah, I mean, it's a unique moment, right? There's, there's. Uh, by the way, though, I, I think no matter what comes out, um, it's probably not going to change some people's minds because I think there are a number of folks that say, I know Donald Trump's lying. I just don't care anymore. I, I'm just all in with Trump. He can lie all he wants. But I do think in the interest, you know, uh, of kind of national security of of 
domestic politics. Uh, you know, transparency is good, but let's keep in mind from what I've heard, you know, based on a report on open source, there is some stuff that is so classified you can't even say what it is. And if that's the case, certainly we need to make sure that we're not, you know, revealing any of that even in an affidavit. We want to make sure we're not putting anybody's life at risk. And we also want to make sure that if we're redacting things, we're not doing it in a way that people can use that as a conspiracy as well. But we live in a moment where we just have to have accountability from the law because people are going to have their own theories all the time, no matter what it is. And there are people that are going to, you know, follow Donald Trump to the like into the swamp because he they just love him so much. Today, the House Oversight Committee asked social media companies to take, quote, immediate action to address the surge of violent threats being made against law enforcement ever since that Mar-a-Lago search. Uh, To what degree do you blame not only Donald Trump, but some of your Republican colleagues who have attacked the FBI in defense of Trump? I mean, criticism of law enforcement action is one thing, but suggesting that the FBI should be defunded, suggesting, uh, you know, revealing the names of individual FBI agents, et cetera, that's that's a different, different step. It really isn't. And keep in mind, I mean, there's people all over the place now that think the FBI is this deep state conspiracy. FBI agents um, are going to work. They're kissing their families goodbye in the morning. They're doing their job. They're coming home. Many of these agents are Republicans. Not that that matters. Uh, But it just it goes to show that, again, this is all about supporting Donald Trump to the ends of the earth. It doesn't matter who gets hurt. It doesn't matter who gets in his way. He doesn't care who gets in his way and who gets hurt. Because when you're such a deep narcissist to that level, you don't care about the, the damage. And so on the social media side of things, this is I hate to use the term, we, we need to have a conversation because it sounds like you're kicking the can down the road. But we really, as a country, have to come to a conclusion on what social media is and isn't responsible for. I'm all for the First Amendment. What I'm not for is insurrection type, violent type speech being promoted, passed on in these mediums that can lead to a really destabilized situation. I I retweeted some guy that had posted a bunch of TikTok videos of folks with their guns saying, it's time to take down the government. I'm going after the FBI. It's just all over TikTok. It's always amazing to me to see these 50, 60 year old men on TikTok. But those are the kinds (laughs) of things we have to discuss. Like that can't be allowed anymore in this country. I want to turn to another Trump investigation, the work you're doing as part of the January 6th uh, Select Committee. You've been going back and forth uh, with former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, about some matters. But I want to focus you on what he said about his interview with the January 6th Committee. Take a listen. You know, they were they were chasing witches, right? This was uh, this was a far field wandering interview. I spoke the truth to them. I can't tell you the details, Laura. Um, They were looking for discussions about the 25th Amendment discussions that I never seriously undertook with any of my counterparts. Uh, They were were looking to build a storyline, the conclusion of which was already written. What do you think? Well, look, obviously I can't reveal what he talked about, but let me say this about Mike. Um, You know, he and I are, we're friends. We work together in Congress. He was as hawkish as I am, very much a believer in what America stood for. Went off to the administration, did a good job at CIA, became Secretary of State, and basically did all of Donald Trump's bidding. He, you know, wrote the deal with the Taliban, for God's sakes. And then he's trying to pin this all on Biden. Look, I blame Joe Biden for what happened in Afghanistan. I also blame Mike Pompeo. You, you, you don't have to pick a side here. They're all to blame. And uh, 
He's trying to run for president. Let's just be clear. He wants to run for president. He knows that he cannot go after Trump and run for president. He's hoping Trump doesn't run and he can use that lane. So he's trying to walk a tightrope. That is somebody without a moral center. And, and he had a moral center. So I don't know what happened when he went off to the administration, but I guess power is very, very attractive to some people, as they always say, power corrupts. And uh, in this case, it's sad to see my friend gone the way he's gone. If he could just tell the truth, um, I know he did some actually heroic things within the administration to, to prevent disaster, um, but he's trying to pick the Trump side because he thinks he can be president that way. Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. You bet, Jake. Next, a day of reckoning finally for a terrorist that captured the world's attention with gruesome beheadings and tortuous attacks, plus inside a conservative movement, how the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision has emboldened anti-abortion activists looking to modernize laws in their view, and how bad habits could raise your risks of dying from cancer. Coming up, the new evidence that backs up what so many of you already fear. Stay with us. Topping our worldly judgment day for a terrorist whose vicious killings of Americans shocked the world and put global leaders on notice that ISIS was a force with which to be reckoned. El-Shifi al-Sheikh was part of the ISIS cell of former British nationals called the Beatles by their American hostages. They kidnapped and killed journalists and aid workers, including four Americans between 2012 and 2015. Three men were beheaded and a woman, Kayla Mueller, was raped, repeatedly tortured and later killed. CNN's Kylie Atwood joins us now. Kylie, one of those hostages was, of course, James Foley, a widely respected freelance American journalist who worked for the NewsHour, CBS, among others. His family spoke after Al-Sheikh was given eight life sentences today. How are they responding? Yeah, so his mother, Diane Foley, welcomed this sentence. But, of course, this isn't an easy day for her, Jake. Today also marks the eighth anniversary to the day that Jim Foley was murdered, beheaded by ISIS in Syria. So this is a, a really tough day for her. She called this a hollow victory because, of course, there has been some justice served here. But, of course, uh, her son was killed at the hands of these terrorists. Uh, listen to what she said, however, about there being some justice served. Let this sentencing make clear to all who dare to kidnap, torture, or kill any American citizen abroad that U.S. justice will find you wherever you are and that our government will hold you accountable for your crimes against our citizens. We also heard from Kayla Mueller's mother and father. And what they said today was that the U.S. government, US government needs to act quickly when there are other Americans who are detained abroad. That was their message. Of course, Kayla Mueller was an aid worker who was killed at the hands of ISIS uh, when she was in Syria as well. And Kylie, the Foley parents have made justice for detained or murdered Americans overseas. They've made it their life's work rather admirably. Uh, have they been supporting other high-profile detainees uh, that we've been focusing on recently, such as Paul Whelan or Brittany Griner, who are being held by Russia? They provide a ton of support to these families, Jake. It's pretty remarkable that Diane Foley is able to do this, of course, after the torture that she has been through with her son being killed at the hands of terrorists. But she's really able to provide 
emotional support to these families and also strategic support to these families. Because what she said today outside that courtroom is that the reason that she even founded the Foley Foundation was because she believes that the U.S. government can do a better job on its effort to bring home these Americans who are wrongfully detained abroad. Really just a remarkable person, uh, taking all that grief and turning it into altruism. Kylie Atwood, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A 21-year-old says she's looking to modernize anti-abortion law. CNN met up with her in Massachusetts, where an emboldened conservative movement seems to be underway. Stay with us. International lead abortion remains legal in Michigan after a judge earlier today ruled to keep a very strict law on hold. The law was passed in 1931, well before Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. And at the time, almost a century ago, the law allowed local prosecutors to charge abortion providers with felonies for performing the procedure. In the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade this June, Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan asked the state Supreme Court to review and ultimately to block that 1931 law. Any moment in Arizona, a court hearing will try to clear up confusion around that state's two conflicting abortion laws. One law bans abortion in all cases except when the mother's life is at risk. The other law bans the procedure after 15 weeks. Since June, activists on both sides of this polarizing issue have been galvanized, as CNN's Ellie Reeve reports for us now. Members of the anti-abortion movement in Boston say the ruling is an opportunity to create a more conservative society. When I was 12, I was fundraising for a local pregnancy resource center. And during that time, I was watching videos of what abortions actually were. And from that moment on, I knew that the rest of my life would be dedicated to uh, working in the pro-life movement. Deborah Cumbie is 21 years old and has spent half her life in anti-abortion politics. She's trained in activism at conservative think tanks. The first thing I texted my best friend was, in all caps, Roe v. Wade is overturned. And she just texted back and she's like, it's about time. We're just absolutely ecstatic that the pro-life movement has been given this chance to modernize our laws. Cumbie is unusual. 74% of adults under 30 think abortion should be legal in most cases. But she embodies an effort in the anti-abortion movement to present a more modern, woman-friendly face. One still rooted in religion, but with a pitch that makes claims based on science. My faith informs me how I treat people, but science is what tells me that life begins at conception. I'm not supposed to exist. I'm a young woman who's a professional who is advocating for the life of children. We're here to say, if you need a community to come alongside you and give you another option, other than to take the life of your child and pay into an abortion industry that uh, really just wants to take your money and kill your child, we're here to tell you, you don't have to do that. Do you really think abortion providers just want to take your money and kill your child? Do you think that's their motivation? It looks like to a lot of us that they are targeting disadvantaged women so that way um, uh, they can continue to have uh, their practice um, and uh, their stream of revenue come in. So is that a yes? Yeah. The Dobbs decision brings the fight to the states. At the Massachusetts Family Institute, Andrew Beckwith thinks his state is the front line in the culture war. The child conceived in Massachusetts should have the same right to life and to birth as a child conceived in Mississippi or Texas or Alabama. The infant mortality rate in Mississippi, which you consider the more pro-life state, is twice as high as it is in Massachusetts. 
I mean, that, that's a tragedy. Here in Massachusetts, we've got some of the best medical care. It's a shame that we don't leverage that to promote a culture of life. Legal scholar Erica Bakiaki is trying to create a socially conservative feminism that rejects the sexual revolution. When you sort of enable through abortion what you think is consequence-free sex, you're really just putting the consequences on women. We've left women with the burdens of fertility, and we've really let men off the hook. And I think what we've seen, I mean, in the last 50 years is this real epidemic of fatherlessness. We believe men should be responsible um, and be fathers and not you know, use abortion as a kind of after-the-fact contraception or um, you know, get-out-of-jail-free card. So do you think banning abortion would make men more responsible as fathers? I think it should. We're going to have to really help restore the culture to where fatherhood is valued. We want to give them something better than just sort of video games and Netflix. I just don't understand why I need to give something up so that men can be better people. Like maybe you could develop what, what you policy. See, what do you see yourself as giving up? Why would women need to give up their right to an abortion so that men can eventually become better people? What if you made policy to address the man problem that addressed the man problem directly? I think you're coming at it from just from a very different place, conceptually even. The conceptual framework Bakiaki is working in imagines a less individualistic society, one that emphasizes the obligations people have to each other. Less abortion, more family leave. Is the goal to convince progressive women to accept restrictions on abortion, or is the goal to convince conservatives to create a more generous social welfare state? I'd say the goal is probably both. The GOP has been really captured by libertarian forces for a long time, and they have not understood the ways in which some economic transitions going all the way back to industrialization have really harmed especially the working classes and the poor. This pitch is like, okay, sacrifice your individual rights. Like, it's actually in your best interest. You sacrifice your individual rights to an abortion, but we're going to get all this other good stuff. But the good stuff never comes. There's just a real shift, I think, happening in the GOP that I hope happens more and more toward understanding the responsibilities that the community as a whole has toward families. We would love to see more organizations instead of paying for women to get abortions. We'd love to see them offer other alternatives like paid maternity leave um, and having flexible hours for their women who have children. I'm wondering, are you as focused on convincing conservatives of the necessity for a broader, more generous welfare state? I mean, to be honest, here in Massachusetts, all of our time is really taken by putting out the fires of pro-choice and anti-life policies. I want life to prevail within the United States and in Massachusetts. Ellie Reeve, CNN, Boston. Now, thanks to Ellie Lee for that reporting. Coming up next, the urgent warning from Apple. How easily hackers could take control of your iPhone or your iPad and what you can do right now to prevent it. Stay with us. In our Health Lead today, half, half of cancer deaths around the world are linked to preventable causes. A new study published in the British medical journal The Lancet finds that smoking, drinking excessive alcohol, and having a high body mass index are among the top risk factors. The study says in 2019, preventable risk factors such as those accounted for 44.4% 
of all cancer deaths globally. That's 4,450,000 deaths that could have been prevented by simple changes in behavior. Quitting smoking, cutting down on the booze, and eating less. Although for some people, it is not so simple. In the tech lead today, update your Apple products right now. Go to settings, go to general, and then hit software update. Settings, general, software update. Do it. Do it right now. The tech giant says it has discovered a massive security flaw that could potentially enable hackers to control your device's operating system, accessing your messages, your location, even your camera and your microphone. Phones as far back as iPhone 6s and iPads and Macs are affected by this vulnerability. Let's bring in cybersecurity expert Dave Kennedy to discuss. Dave, Apple says the flaw gives hackers the ability to, quote, execute arbitrary code, which which means, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that hackers could get access to personal information such as photographs or, or bank accounts. Yeah, what this what this advisory means is that there was two exploits that were found in the wild, which means that hackers were abs- actively exploiting this specific vulnerability. So they were actively hacking into phones, devices, iPads, MacBooks. We don't know the fullest extent, but it, it, these two attacks essentially allow you to have full access to the devices, which would allow you to listen to phone calls, conversations, enable cameras, listen, you know, pull text messages, pull emails, anything on your device, essentially the security is removed from these specific exploits. It's like something out of a horror movie. What what groups of individuals are these high-level hackers likely focusing upon? Yeah, when you look at at the sophistication levels of these types of hacks, they go for millions and millions of dollars on the black market. So it's not very easily readily available for average run-of-the-mill bad hackers. Um, So normally we see these types of exploits used very heavily with uh, private groups like the NSO group out of Israel, which has been known to build private exploits for governments that may not have the cyber capabilities. China obviously has very high-level cyber capabilities, Russia, the United States. And what Apple does is, you know, they, they, when they identify these in the wild, they get these advisories out, they patch them. But what it also means is that when these patches come out, all of the hackers now know that there's vulnerabilities and flaws in these locations. And so that's why it's so urgent right now to patch your devices, your MacBook, your MacBook Air, your MacBook Pro, your iPhone, your iPad. Uh, because now that the cat's kind of out of the bag, it's not just these high-end hackers that are probably going after you know, DOD resources, researchers, um, high-level government individuals. It's now the, the mass public that now is, is susceptible to these specific types of threats. And that's why it's equally important to get these patches out right now to everybody. Yeah, I did the software update just today. Again, go to your go to the settings, go to general, and then hit software update. I have to say, I'm no tech expert. This seems like a pretty big window that Apple left open. How did that happen? Well, these these are complex flaws when they occur. You know, you have to look at uh, how do they impact all the other systems. Uh, the two specifically, the one which is called WebKit, uh, impacts Safari. So if you're browsing a website, your phone could potentially be hacked. The second one is what we call a kernel exploit, and these are much more complex in nature because it's it's kind of how the operating system works. It's the head honcho, I guess, on the operating system, the full access, full administrative access uh, to the system itself. And so these often require um, a lot of time to investigate, research, and ensure that the patches don't break anything else. Uh, Apple's usually pretty good. Um, just a, a, a brief statistic, we've only seen four other zero-day type vulnerabilities that were critical patches patched this year, so a total of six now. Uh, this year, conversely, whereas Microsoft has had a lot more of those predominantly. Apple usually does a pretty good job around the security mm-hmm. around their devices. But as these come out, it's why it's so important to patch as quick as you possibly can. 
And we're also hearing concerns about the popular app TikTok. Forbes is reporting that code embedded in the in-app browser can read keystrokes by users. TikTok denies this as being used to track user information in any way. Uh, but how concerning is this given the broader security issues with the app, which obviously comes from China? Yeah, TikTok is definitely a major app. I personally don't let my uh, kids or family uh, on it. But uh, at the same time, you know, TikTok has definitely been one of those things from a, a collection of data perspective that has been a major concern for the U.S. government. There's been advisories out around its collection capabilities. In this latest research, what they identified is that um, it has the a lot of apps track where you go. It's kind of an advertisement thing. Google tracks you, Facebook, all of these social media sites track where you're going, your spending habits, everything else. You're the product for a lot of these different types of, of, of programs. But in this case, you know, it appears that what TikTok is allowing itself to do is actually capture all of your keystrokes uh, and everything that you're typing. So it definitely could be major, major, a major issue, major security concern and something that we should all be looking at. Sounds like you're saying that everybody should delete it. Not a fan of TikTok. Not a fan of TikTok, Jake. <laughs> All right, Dave Kennedy, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, one mother's pain and rage and why she says she needs you to hear her story. Take, take a minute. We'll be right back. In our national lead today, grief, rage, feeling forgotten. That's the cycle of emotions a mother says she is currently experiencing after losing two sons in less than a year. One son, a U.S. Marine, died in that terrorist attack in Afghanistan last August during the chaotic U.S. withdrawal. And just 10 days ago, her other son took his own life after struggling to deal with his brother's death. Now that devastated mom is speaking with CNN's Kyung La about her pain. I don't think any parent should ever have to bury their kid. Lashana Chapel will, twice in just one year. This was a year ago at the Hamid Karzai International Airport. Kabul was falling to the Taliban. Afghans fled in droves, and America was pulling out of its longest war. As far as I knew, they were just evacuating people. I just thought, okay, well, he's doing his job, he's helping people, and then he's going to be home in a few days. Chapel's son, Marine Lance Corporal Kareem Nakuli, sent his mother pictures and video explaining how the Marines were helping outside the airport. He had sent me a video of him with a little boy. Say hi. I was happy because Kareem is great with kids. Kids make him happy. The morning of August 26, I woke up, but when I woke up, I woke up crying. And I couldn't figure out why I was crying. I was very emotional. I was very, felt very emotional about Kareem. And the first post that popped up was a picture of Abby Gate and an explosion had happened. And the first thing that hit my mind was the video Kareem had sent me and in the background was Abby Gate. Her son's father was the first to know. And he said, Shanna. And as soon as he said Shanna, I just started screaming because I knew what he was going to tell me. He didn't even have to tell me. It's weird. He never even had to say it. I just knew. Lance Corporal Kareem Nakui, one of 13 flag-draped caskets, returned to Dover Air Force Base, then home to his family in Norco, California. But months after the ceremonies faded, his older brother, Dakota, struggled to accept what had happened. He'd come up here sometimes at night and sleep here to be with Kareem, and I'd be like... Well, Dakota, you can't be sleeping there. Why was he sleeping here? To be close to Cream. He didn't want Cream here alone. He would say it bothers him that Cream's here alone. As the one year was approaching, he started expressing that. Well, Cream's really gone. He's not coming back, you know. He would cry. 
And I just took it as, well, we're all hurting. Because we all are. I didn't know he, there was, he gave no signs. I didn't know he was going to do that. Sheriff's deputies would find 28-year-old Dakota's body just days before the one-year anniversary of his brother's death in Afghanistan. It's across from the memorial in a place where he spent a lot of time with his brothers. That's the park that Dakota chose to take his life. Do you blame Dakota's death on the war? Yeah, I do. Like, it's a pain that is just so hard to deal with because you can't even understand it because it's like a pain you've never felt before, so you can't even understand it. You can't even make sense of it. You can't even describe it. So I know with Dakota, the reality this month, for some reason, it was this month the reality started setting in for me. People who are watching this are wondering, how are you able to, to talk about this? Because I'm still in the shock phase right now. I keep saying, what am I going to do when the shock phase wears off? How am I going to react to this? What's going to happen to me? Shanna Chapel wants you to hear her grief, but also her rage that one year after the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, she feels forgotten. Because the withdrawal was a complete failure. doesn't look good for the administration, so they wanted the disastrous pullout forgotten about, and they wanted the 13 that were killed to be forgotten about, mainly because they were so young. It could have been handled completely differently, and those 13 kids would still be here. They were treated like they were disposable and replaceable. And that's what really gets me. Adding financial insult to her pain, Chapel needs to raise the money to bury her son sometime in September, Jake. She's started a GoFundMe account hoping to raise that money, and her plan is to bury Dakota next to her son. Jake. All right, Kyung, we'll, we'll post uh, the GoFundMe account on Twitter, and people who have the money can help, can help her with that. Thank you so much for that powerful report. If you or someone you know is struggling and having suicidal thoughts or depression, please call or text the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988-988. There is, there is help for you. There is love for you. Coming up, Russia's threat with Europe's largest nuclear power plant caught in a standoff between the Kremlin and Ukraine. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the very first steps to recovery for one Little Leaguer who suffered life-threatening injuries in the dorms of the Little League World Series just as his team takes its first step to the championship. Plus, choppy water ahead as Arizona braces for the brunt of unprecedented water cuts due to the dropping Colorado River and climate crisis. Our Earth Matters series takes a look at the fight that is teeing up on the fairways and putting greens. And leading this hour, the world is on edge about the unclear status of Europe's largest nuclear power complex in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. New satellite images obtained by CNN contradict Vladimir Putin's claims that Ukrainian soldiers are shelling Russians who are currently using the power plant. It's not clear if the facility is secure. There is a growing dispute over who actually has the rights to the power supply from that plant. Thousands of miles away, U.S. officials say they're monitoring the situation very closely. CNN senior international correspondent Sam Kiley joins us now live from Zaporizhia. Sam, these new satellite images are a stark reminder why we need to be so skeptical of any claims made about this plant. Remind us how dangerous this situation has become. 
Well, Jake, uh, I think, first of all, the military danger, which we uh, can look at uh, the counterclaim, if you like, from CNN's own investigation into using these satellite images to look at whether or not Vladimir Putin's claim reflected following his conversation with the French president that the Ukrainians were shelling in and around the uh, nuclear power station was true. It would appear from these uh, satellite images that it is almost certainly untrue. Uh, there's been no significant change in the level of uh, attacks, uh, evidence of attacks since the uh, last, last images were taken a month ago. So that really gives the lie to a long-standing uh, propaganda line taken by the Russians that the Ukrainians are trying to shell the, their own nuclear power station in order to make the Russians look bad. Now, that is on the one level. But on the other hand, you, we do know, uh, because I've seen the evidence on the ground for myself, that missiles are being fired by Russian troops from very close to that nuclear power station, in a sense, almost inviting a counterattack. They have killed 13 civilians in Nikopol across the Dnieper River in government-held territory uh, and hit several other villages too. So in that context, one can understand the demands being made increasingly stridently by the international community to demilitarize that area. Indeed, that is why the French president called Vladimir Putin earlier on today it, because of their deep concerns uh, of some kind of military-inspired catastrophe there. Yeah, and a, and a French source tells CNN that Russian President Putin has agreed to allow the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, to send inspectors to the Zaporizhia nuclear <clears> power plant. <throat> Does Putin have any conditions? I can't imagine he doesn't. He certainly did have conditions, uh, one of which was that the IAEA uh, would, be, would have to go before uh, or whilst there was no de demilitarization process. Now, this is a frontline location. It is a location where the Russians are using live ammunition and, and killing people in the Ukrainian lines. Uh, and in, the Russians themselves claim uh, the Ukrainians are shooting back, although, as we've just discussed, that's probably not true. But it is extremely dangerous. So uh, there's a lot to be worked out before the inspectors could actually get there at all. Sam Kiley reporting from Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Thank you so much for that. I want to bring in CNN's Oren Lieberman, who's at the Pentagon. Oren, how closely is the United States monitoring what is happening at Zaporizhia? Incredibly closely. They're watching not only all the rhetoric around this from the Ukrainian and the Russian side to get a better sense of what's happening there, but a senior defense official told uh, reporters earlier today that Russia's actions around Zaporizhia are the height of irresponsibility and that Russia has shown a complete disregard for safety and security around Ukraine's nuclear power plants. Now, it is important that we say that defense officials have told us there is no indication of some Russian action or operation imminently around the power plant, but that doesn't mean there's no reason to be worried here. First, earlier on in this war, Russia has fired at or near a Ukrainian power plant early on. And second, one of the things that the U.S. has watched constantly is that Russia's M.O. is essentially to accuse Ukraine or an adversary of something they're about to do. And because of Russia's rhetoric, that is one of the many reasons why the U.S. is watching this so closely. The U.S., the senior defense official, offered a simple solution. Russia should get out of a power plant that it doesn't own. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, Oren, has already thanked the United States after the Pentagon announced today it would send uh, another $775 million in military assistance to Ukraine. What, what kind of assistance are we talking about? 
Well, this is the 19th package we're seeing of drawdown of U.S. inventories heading into Ukraine. That number, the total committed to Ukraine from the U.S., from the Biden administration, has now crossed $10 billion. In terms of what we're looking at, first, crucially, more ammo for the... uh, High mobility artillery rocket system, HIMARS. This is something that's changed the dynamic of the fight there and worked very well for Ukraine. More howitzers, 16 more smaller 105 millimeter howitzers, a thousand javelins and other anti tank weapons. These worked incredibly effectively at stopping Russian armor at the beginning of this war. Mine clearing equipment, equipment the US says Russia has extensively mined southern and eastern Ukraine, as well as 15 Scan Eagle drones for reconnaissance. Humvees, communication equipment, night vision goggles. Jake, it is obvious when you look at this list, the U.S. doesn't see this ending very quickly. Neither, of course, does Ukraine or pretty much the world. Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's talk about all these developments with CNN National Security Analyst Steve Hall. He's the former chief of Russia operations at the CIA. Uh, Steve, let me start with your reaction to these new satellite images showing that there are no signs uh, of what President Putin, Putin claimed was, quote, systemic shelling of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant by Ukraine. Uh, Both sides obviously have been blaming each other for damage. It's difficult to know for sure what's going on. But as an onlooker, uh, how do you analyze what's going on and how do you parse through the disparities between claims by, by either side? I mean, first, Jake, it's, it's obviously no surprise that, you know, Vladimir Putin is making a claim that's obviously false. Uh, you remember, this is the same guy who not too long ago was saying, no, 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 all these troops uh, that are massing in Russia just over the Ukrainian border, we have no intention uh, of invading. And of course, we all know uh, how that ended up. So, you know, whenever Vladimir Putin says something or the Kremlin says something like, well, it's the Ukrainians uh, that are attacking us uh, as we peacefully occupy uh, their nuclear reactor, uh, you, you have to you have to you know, think twice and ask yourself, why is it why is it really going on in this part of the world? Jake, there is this there is a strong tendency, which is really hard for us to understand sometimes in the West of doing something that the Russians refer to as provocations. So they destroy something in the nuclear power plant and then say, aha, the Ukrainians did it. Or they try to set up a deal that they do damage to some other some other militarily important object and say, this wasn't us. This is the Ukrainians. And this is just something that is, you know, standard operating procedure for the Kremlin. And we have to be very careful when they start fooling around with things like nuclear power plants and that sort of thing. So uh, President Putin has agreed to give the International Atomic Energy uh, Agency, the IAEA, access to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant with with some caveats, of course. Um, he said that they can have access without having to go through Russian-occupied territory. That was uh, an assurance made during a phone call with French President Emmanuel Macron. Uh, what's your reaction? Well, again, one always has to look uh, you know, very skeptically at any assurances and there's, from the Russians. And, of course, there's, there's lots of things that, that Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin can play with. Uh, with this with this proposal to put, you know, international observers, IAEA people or, you know, UN or, who, or whatever other international entity uh, to go in there. That said, it's common sense that this is what should be done. I mean, neither neither side should really be using this power plant as some sort of, you know, some sort of trading chip. I mean, it does belong to Ukraine. And of course, the Russians were the ones who invade. And it, it is a strategic target. The Russians want this because they want to lessen the, the, the infrastructure capabilities of Ukraine. And of course, it is the Ukrainians by right. Um, but in this point where you've got it actually on a frontline situation, it makes a lot of sense to have the IAEA in there. But we're going to have to watch very carefully how the Russians try to manipulate that, because trust me, they will. So, of course, world leaders around, you know, around the globe are terrified about what might happen here. The United Nations is pushing 
for the area around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant to be completely demilitarized to remove any risk uh, of some sort of nuclear disaster. Russia says, of course, absolutely not. And, and there doesn't seem to be much incentive uh, beyond what's already going on, the sanctions and the like, for Russia to leave. What, what is the way to make uh, Russia leave or at least demilitar- allow the demilitarization of this one small part of Ukraine? Yeah, that's going to be the be the tricky part, uh, Jake, because the Russians, of course, aren't just going to say, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, let's stop messing around with this nuclear power plant, despite the fact that this is, of course, the same country that the that the horrific Chernobyl meltdown, uh, you know, happened in. Now, I'm, I'm quick to say that in Zaporizhia, the situation is quite different than in Chernobyl. However, if I were a European, you know, living sort of you know, having Ukraine in my back door and having Russia do this type of thing, you know, I would indeed be very nervous because as we saw with Chernobyl, when things go bad in a nuclear power plant, the winds take materials, all sorts of bad things can happen to Europe. So it would make sense that the Europeans are concerned. They really ought to be concerned about how Vladimir Putin is going to try to get payback payback for this. If he says, okay, I'll let IAEA in there, I'll let some monitors go in. But in exchange, I want whatever it is that Vladimir Putin is thinking that day. So he's going to try to mess with this. He's going to try to create a a sort of a you owe me if I cooperate with you type of situation. The Russians are very good at doing that. And in the U.N., they they do that, you know, in spades. And so it ought to be the U.N. that's involved in in pushing this forward uh, with uh, with Russia as well, I think. And United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, was in Odessa, uh, Ukraine, earlier today. He insisted that the electricity generated at Zaporizhia belongs to Ukraine. Indeed, Ukraine belongs to Ukraine. Uh, This followed reports that the Kremlin uh, possibly is planning on diverting electricity produced at that plant, uh, if not cutting it off from Ukraine, perhaps diverting it to to Russian-occupied territory. If Russia did that, uh, what would that mean for Ukraine? You know, winter is coming up. You know, this is something that the Russians have really been doing incrementally over the past couple of months since the invasion began. They've been doing things like going into uh, territory that they have taken uh, from Ukraine and are trying to control and doing things like, uh, you know, issuing Russian passports to the to the to the local Ukrainians. Uh, They have been doing things like taking Russians and putting them, you know, making them the mayors and in control of these towns. And now what we're seeing is them moving into significant infrastructure. This is a large electricity producing power plant that that Ukraine depends on. And they're going to basically go in and and steal it and steal the electricity. So that's not not new for Russia. Steve Hall, thank you, as always, for your expertise and your time. Appreciate it. Should Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton be treated the same way when it comes to how they handle classified documents? Our next guest says, yes. Then, when there's not enough water, who gets to use it? These are the decisions facing officials in one state where a water fight is churning. Stay with us. Now to our politics lead. We're getting a slightly sharper picture of the focus of the DOJ in the Mar-a-Lago search. Documents newly unsealed by a federal judge include the phrase, quote, willful retention of national defense information. Willful. That language could possibly point to the former president, Donald Trump, as a possible subject of the investigation. So could Donald Trump be charged with a crime? Should he be? The dispatch's David French wrote an article titled, quote, apply the Hillary Clinton rule to Donald Trump, unquote, adding, quote, there cannot be one legal standard for Republicans and another for Democrats, referencing the 2016 decision by then FBI Director James Comey to not charge then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton for having classified information on her private email server. 
Joining us now to discuss is the author of that piece, David French. David, thanks for joining us. Good to see you. In your article, you wrote, quote, if two men commit an identical crime and one receives twice the punishment of the other, that that disparity rightly violates our sense of justice and fairness, unquote. So in your opinion, and obviously information is still coming in on the Trump deal, how similar are the Clinton email case and Trump having classified documents allegedly at Mar-a-Lago? Now, more similar than a lot of people would like to acknowledge, to be honest. So if you look at the Hillary Clinton situation, she had on a private server, not on a government server, a private server, several email chains that included top secret information classified at some of the highest levels. So this was information that, as James Comey said in his press conference announcing that he wasn't going to prosecute her, this is information that she should have known had no business being on a private server. In fact, during my time in the military, had I had that kind of information on a private server, I would have expected military discipline, severe military discipline under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Now, Trump, it appears, had highly classified information, apparently marked classified in his possession improperly. There's, that's where the similarity is. And then the question becomes, was Trump's behavior in some ways materially worse? And that's where we get into some of the other questions regarding deception or potential, you know, not fully answering a subpoena, for example. Um, that's what there's a lot that we don't know around Trump's handling of these documents. But on first blush, a lot of the facts are more similar, I think, than a lot of Democrats would like to acknowledge. Now, the former FBI director Comey noted at the time that Clinton's private email server had seven email chains that were classified as the top level security clearance, as you suggested. Um, And we know that the FBI took one set of documents from Mar-a-Lago that were a similar level of security clearance. Um, What do you say to those who argue Clinton might have been reckless in having these discussions on a private email server, but there really isn't an explanation, at least we haven't heard one, about why Donald Trump took these documents from the White House to Mar-a-Lago and why he was blocking the Justice Department from reclaiming the information. And that's where I think a lot of people would say this really is very different, especially when it comes to the behavior of Clinton versus Trump. Yeah, well, this is, you know, let's go back into what Comey said. This, what Comey said was we prosecute cases that involve some combination of clearly intentional and willful mishandling of classified information, um, exposure, quantities of material exposed in a way to support an inference of intentional misconduct, indications of disloyalty or efforts to obstruct justice. Okay, this, when you're talking about intentional or willful mishandling of classified information, there was a lot there that was intentional and willful about Hillary Clinton's conduct. She didn't accidentally set up a private server. She didn't accidentally discuss top secret information. But some of the other efforts, the obstruction efforts may not be the same. So we have to know a lot more about this. But I, one thing I want to make clear is, you know, a lot of these folks who look back in 2016 and have this phrase, but her emails are really denigrating right. the gravity of what she did. Yeah, no, I, and, and I've never done that and, and uh, you know, been right. criticized by the left <laughs> as a result. <laughs> are there differences, though, do you think? Are there differences that you also see between the Clinton email case and the Trump Mar-a-Lago yeah. case uh, that 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 come into into focus as well? Well, yes, and some of this is based on reporting that hasn't yet been fully confirmed, and so that's you know with that caveat, we need to note that 
if, for example, uh, Trump team did not comply with the subpoena, in other words, it held back information that was responsive to a subpoena, intentionally held that back, that's more troubling. That's very deeply troubling. If there's evidence of shifting or hiding of documents, um, that would be more troubling than what you had in the Clinton situation. So a lot of that deals with this sort of notion that we've heard a million times, Jake, of it's not the crime, it's the cover up. Uh, what did right. Trump do once it was known that he possessed classified information, once it was known that the government wanted that classified information back from him, how deceptive was he? And that's where he could really be in a lot more trouble than Clinton found herself in. And, and one last thing, and we're running out of time, um, so this is unfair of me, but let me just say, like, it does seem as though Hillary Clinton, the, the private email server, who knows why she was doing that, maybe she wanted to avoid FOIA or whatever, but she was doing her official business as Secretary of State. That's why she had those right. secret documents. We don't know why Donald Trump had these top secret documents in his private residence after he became president. That's, that's the big mystery, and, and we still haven't gotten a, a decent explanation. Right. I mean, there's obviously justification for Hillary Clinton while she's Secretary of State to deal with top secret information. There was no justification for the private server. Here we don't have justification for Trump holding the top secret information now as a private citizen, and we don't have justification for the location of that classified information. So in that circumstance, there is, there is a distinction. David French, always good to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. The two words one Republican lawmaker refuses to say as the GOP tries to hold on to their competitive congressional seat. What are those two words? We'll tell you next. We're back with our politics lead. Quote, I don't say his name ever. That's what one anonymous Republican lawmaker running for re-election in a competitive district told CNN about Donald Trump. This comes as the man in charge of the House GOP strategy, Minnesota Congressman Tom Emmer, has been advising candidates not to focus on Trump, but rather focus on Republican policies. Joining us now to discuss, former Utah Congresswoman Nia Love and Democratic strategist Maria Cardona. Um, Congresswoman, what do you make of vulnerable Republicans trying to distance themselves from Trump on the campaign trail? If Republicans are going to win, Jake, they cannot continue to hold the water for Donald Trump. They can't continue to just try and defend Donald Trump because they miss the boat. They miss talking about doing work for the American people. They miss talking about how they're actually going to reduce inflation, how they're actually going to help Americans when it comes to uh, making their lives better tomorrow than it is today. I, I just, I, I can't tell you enough how I have been begging Republicans to start talking about what they are for, the thing, what they're going to do, how they're going to move policy forward. If they continue to defend Donald Trump, then they're not really working for people, are they? They're working for Donald. And, and Maria, we, we see the, the opposite going on. We see Democrats distancing themselves from uh, President Biden in, in many respects, not answering questions about whether or not they'll campaign with him uh, and, and, and just more overtly distancing themselves. Is Biden a huge drag, do you think, on Democrats? No, absolutely not. And I actually think it's a huge mistake for any Democrat to be distancing themselves from a president who has had massive legislative wins in the past couple of weeks and, frankly, 
in his first term. And it's all coming to fruition now. I think that what you're seeing is uh, the Democrats are in an upswing in terms of the actual solutions that Mia was just talking about. She wishes that Republicans would talk about for the American people on the issues that they most care about. Right. So the Inflation Reduction Act, you have that done. That is going to help uh, our older folks with uh, Medicare and all of their prescription drugs. And that's hugely, hugely popular. Gas prices are coming down and Mm -hmm. you're seeing Democrats really with kind of wind in their sails looking at the midterms and saying, hey, this is not going to be as bad as everyone thought. Probably we're going to keep the Senate, the House. It's possible that we're not going to see as many losses as we thought. And so I think we're actually in a really good place. Democrats should not be distancing themselves from this president. And I think they should focus on continuing to talk about the solutions that they're going to try to continue to do. And frankly, the ones that they've already passed. Congresswoman, let me ask you, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, I know there are a lot of Republicans out there hoping he'll run for president, hoping that he will uh, take the party in a non-Trump direction. He's currently hitting the campaign trail uh, for Republican candidates in in Pennsylvania and Ohio today, uh, including some that deny that Joe Biden won the election. Former Congressman Joe Walsh, Republican of Illinois, tweeted today, quote, no matter how carefully he tries to dance around it, The fact is Ron DeSantis is actively campaigning to help get election deniers around the country elected. That means DeSantis is an election denier, period, unquote. Do you agree? I, you know, I think that Ron DeSantis is going to try, he's going to add something different to to the uh, field. And I think from this point on, if he just focuses on issues and moves away from trying to hold the water from Donald Trump, then um, I I think that he will have an, a lot to add. And there are Republicans that can jump on and, and, and really... Uh, support him. But I wanted to mention something about about what uh, Maria was saying. I think it's fine that Democrats, if they want to come together and talk about legislation that they've passed and uh, build a coalition, but it's really it, this, this is not really about reducing inflation. One of the reasons why I introduced the one subject at a time bill every year that I was in Congress, it's because I wanted to stop all of these pieces of uh, all of this, these bills going into a bill and um, and having it be called something else. There's an independent uh, analysis that was done by Penn Wharton that validates some of the major concerns of this bill. It does raise inflation in the near term. It reduces take-home pay for Americans over the long term and reduces GDP not to mention the tens of thousands of new IRS agents that are going to be assigned to audit middle-class families, despite hearing repeatedly from the administration that that's not the case. It's in the bill. So there are some concerns. This bill is it does have some good things, but there are a lot of issues with it that are going to hurt Americans. Well, I think that... Maria, it is true. It, it, it is, I, I want to let you... It yeah, is just to... Just to to talk about what, what uh, the congresswoman just said. It is sure. true uh, that, I th- I, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and the opinion of, of a lot of journalists and others, including economists, that a more accurate title for the bill would be a climate change health care tax reform bill uh, <laughs> than Inflation Reduction Act, because it, it, the question about whether or not we'll reduce inflation, as opposed to reducing costs, which is a separate issue, uh, is really hotly disputed. Well, if you are a middle class or working class family, Jake, and you are looking at 
huge, hugely increased prices on your prescription drugs, and you are seeing a way that that is going to be reduced, call it inflation, call it reduction of cost, what you're going to see is that you're going to be paying less for what you need so desperately. And that, I think, is, is the key here, right? For the needs of middle class, working class families right now and the needs of the country and, frankly, the world right now on climate. And you're right. That is a big piece of this. And we should tout it from the rooftops. We should be very proud of it. It is a hugely popular part of this bill and a very important way to move forward, not just in terms of growth, but also in terms of, mm -hmm. of reducing inflation in the long term. That's a very important piece of this. Again, Democrats are focused on solutions. Republicans are focused on closing the door on anything that Democrats have tried to bring up to reduce uh, inflation. And I think that is a wonderful contrast for Democrats to be making going into the midterm elections. Congresswoman, quick question for you. On Saturday, Republican New York congressional candidate Carl Palladino said that Attorney General Merrick Garland should be executed following the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago. Take a listen. So we have a couple of unelected people who are running our government uh, uh, with uh, an administration of, of people like Garland, okay, who should be not only impeached, he should probably should be executed. The guy, the guy is just lost. To raid the home of a former president is is just it's people people are scratching their heads and they're saying, "What is wrong with this guy?" And Palladino later said he was being facetious with that comment about execution at this time that there are all these death threats to Merrick Garland. The number three Republican in the House, Elise Stefanik, she endorsed Palladino in this race. Do you think she should take back her endorsement? Yes, I do. I, I think there, there's no room for that kind of language, that kind of sentiment. And uh, this is why I am so actually really pleased that Mike Pence is out there telling people, hey, we, we're not going to, we shouldn't be attacking the rank and file of the FBI. We should be celebrating them. They're doing some very difficult work. It's okay to ask questions, but we shouldn't be doing that. I, this is the time, this is why I agree with Mitch McConnell, because if we have candidates like this that are making these comments, they are poor candidates and they're going to lose. Congresswoman Mia Love, Maria Cardona, thanks to both of you. Have a great weekend. Always good to see both of you. Thank you, Coming Jake. up, the growing anti-Semitism threat. We're going to talk to a former skinhead about why some people are drawn to hate more than others. That's ahead. Stay with us. Our faith lead today is an important as well as disturbing topic, anti-Semitism in the United States, which is increasing due in large part to the way bigotry spread so rapidly online and on social media. In a new CNN documentary, Rising Hate, Anti-Semitism in America, my friend and colleague Dana Bash sits down with a man who used to perpetuate that hate, a former skinhead, someone who knows firsthand how easily vulnerable people can fall into this world of bigotry. Their recruiting is pretty sophisticated. Recruitment into the world of hate is something Damian Patton understands well. It happened to him. And this is ultimately where I was recruited uh, into gangs. Right here? Right here. It was the 1980s. Patton was a runaway, homeless on the streets of Los Angeles. How the skinheads approached me was really with 
a business card. Yeah. A business card is reserved for adults. It's reserved for people who are successful, for people who are in business. So you thought, they're successful. They're successful. I want to be like that. Exactly. That's, that's how it all started. It had nothing to do with ideology in the beginning. It had everything to do with wanting to be like them and wanting out of my bad situation. He came from a broken home, a single mom. She was Jewish. The part that probably resonated with me in their message was I was angry. And so anti-Semitism was really saying I was anti my family. Patton became a skinhead, the movement which erupted across the U.S. in the 80s with violent attacks and murders, often targeting Jews. He rose in the ranks, becoming a recruiter himself. Patton says these days, it's easier than ever to lure people in. These white supremacists are sitting at home today looking for the vulnerable online. You can be on a thousand street corners at once now. And that's the big difference. Such an important uh, documentary. Dana, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations. Uh, what did Damien tell you about how he thinks we can stop anti-Semitism from spreading in the future? You know, he, like so many people who are experts in this, say that the technology is, exists or is almost there, perfected. And certainly the, uh, the intention should be there by social media companies and others to make sure that this hate that is spreading like wildfire, I mean, how uh, memorable was that line that you can recruit on a thousand street corners at once right now online to make sure that doesn't happen as rapidly. But the reality is it is. And Jake, one of the things that we explored is what happened during COVID when people were sitting at home on their computers, how the, the spike, particularly in 2021, according to the Anti-Defamation League's uh, data, was even more dramatic. And it's because people were just kind of sitting at home online, but it's also because of one of the age-old tropes, age-old conspiracy theories about Jews, which is that Jews are uh, the cause of disease, that Jews run the world, that Jews, uh, perhaps in this case, uh, were responsible for trying to make money off of the vaccines. Those were so prevalent in some of the, many of the online uh, tropes and attacks that we saw in looking into this. And also, I know, and I know you touch on this in the documentary, kids yeah. can be, they can be susceptible to this by online gaming, where there are plenty of references to anti-Semitism. Jake, I mean, I know you, you have children. I have a son who uh, is on these platforms, particularly for kids even younger than us. Uh, they, the parents think that they are safe, but they are going on Minecraft, on Roblox, and they are able to see a lot of really hateful things. Some of these companies are trying to deal with it, but they don't always catch it all. Parents should really beware of those. All right. Dana Bash, thank you so much. Appreciate thank you. it. Uh, again, be sure to tune in for Dana's new CNN special report. It's called Rising Hate, Anti-Semitism in America. It will air this Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Coming up, climate conflict, the tough questions that communities must confront as the Southwest runs out of water. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, drought conditions in the southwestern United States are slightly improving because of an onslaught of rain, but the ground is too dry to soak it all up. The monsoon rains could lead to more dangerous flash floods, it turns out, like these from last week that stranded drivers in western Arizona, which led to a dramatic water rescue. In total, 
Nearly 10 million, 10 million Americans across the southwestern United States are under flood alerts this weekend. And as the southwest gets pummeled with this rain, a new reality of water conservation is setting in. CNN's Bill Weir is in Arizona. That's a hot spot in the immediate impact of the human-caused climate disaster. Summer monsoons are adding a few precious inches to the Lake Mead water line, but not nearly enough. America's largest reservoir is still 25 feet lower than last summer. So this fall, parts of Phoenix will see unprecedented tier two cuts of their share of the Colorado River, joining Arizona farmers at the end of the water rights line. Do you foresee a day when it's tier three, tier four, and mandatory cuts that will get really severe? So absolutely, I, I, I am genuinely um, worried about the possibility of the system hitting Deadpool. You are? I, absolutely I am. Deadpool is when Mead gets low enough to crash the whole Colorado system. And when Katherine Sorensen was running water departments in Phoenix and Mesa, it was the biggest worry. But now it's worse. And the feds are begging Western states to cut up to one out of every four gallons consumed. I know from our reporting there were some Western water managers that were frustrated that the Bureau of Reclamation wasn't tougher. They, they said, you guys work it out or we'll work it out for you, but they yeah. didn't do that. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it, it is disappointing because the longer that we have to endure the uncertainty, the more at risk the entire system is. And I, I don't envy the federal government, you know, the Biden administration. They have some really tough choices to make. No elected official wants to be the person saying who gets water and who doesn't. I'm sure they are desperately searching for the least worst option. But in the meantime, water levels continue to fall. And we will invest heavily in conservation, efficiency, reuse, and advanced water technologies like desalination. Arizona's outgoing governor wants to build a desalination plant in Mexico and canals in Kansas to bring more water eventually. But in the meantime, the call to use less puts fresh scrutiny on thirsty industries like golf. Especially after an Arizona Republic investigation found that 30 to 50 percent of courses here use more than their share of water with little oversight. State records show that the water cops of Arizona have issued a punishment against a golf course exactly twice in the last 20 years. So it's pretty obvious that from the feds down to the locals, people aren't exactly lining up to be the tough sheriff desperately needed to tame water use in the Wild West. I, I don't golf, uh, so I, I don't feel a need to defend golf. But I will say this, people focus on it because it's visible. But there are lots of things about what we do, what we consume, what we eat, what we wear, that are also very water intensive. So I don't like to think of it in terms of um, we don't have enough water. I like to think of it in terms of what do we have enough water for? Do we want to build semiconductor factories or do we want to grow cotton? Do we want to grow subdivisions or do we want to have high density development that is more water efficient? Those are the conversations we need to have. For example, Catherine tells me that it takes about four times as much water to grow a, an acre of cotton, Jake, than to grow a subdivision on an acre of land. Both, of course, have their trade-offs, and that's the discussion. About 10% of Arizonans golf, 100% of them eat, and most of the Colorado River water, between 70 and 80%, goes to growing food in California, the down, uh, down basin states there. So it's so complicated, but such are the really complicated 
conversations that need to be had from now forward in this climate crisis. Bill Weir, on top of the climate crisis for us, as always, thank you so much for that report. Appreciate it. And Arizona Senator Democrat Mark Kelly will join us on State of the Union this Sunday in his first ever Sunday show interview as a senator. Also joining me will be Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas and the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern only on CNN. Coming up, a positive update on that Little Leaguer who almost died after falling out of his bunk bed in the dorm at the Little League World Series. Some good news next. Today's sports lead is about much more than a game. When we discuss the Little League World Series this year, it's about a 12-year-old boy beating the odds by just staying alive. CNN's Jason Carroll is live for us in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, where the Little League World Series is being played. Um, The boy from a Utah team fell out of a dormitory bunk bed. He hurt his head significantly. And Jason, he wasn't expected to survive. Right. Easton Oliverson, by all accounts, was not supposed to make it. This is what doctors were saying. His condition, Jake, was so severe, but we've just gotten an update from the hospital, and they now tell us he's in fair condition. Uh, His family, just uh, earlier this afternoon, sent us uh, some video of him walking for the first time since his injury with the help of nurses. Again, incredible when you consider what his father told us, which is just a few days ago, doctors were telling him they were not sure his son was going to make it through the night. Doctors are saying he's 30 minutes max from dying with so much pressure on his brainstem that here we are, not even three full days later, he has his mobility, his brain function, and it's not by coincidence. Incredible recovery here, and also the family sent us some pictures of Easton uh, watching the Little League game uh, from his hospital bed uh, as the game was getting underway. When they announced his name, Jake, the entire stadium stood up and applauded. Also, uh, his little brother, his 10-year-old little brother, who uh, Brogan, who stood in his uh, way, who basically came out here and said, I'm going to go out and play for my brother. They stood up and applauded for him as well. So incredible to see the amount of support, even from the opposing team, Tennessee, who wore baseball caps and supportive of young Easton. So a lot of support out him for here today, which goes to show you he's a winner no matter what. Jake. Yeah, we'll continue to keep Easton in our prayers. Jason Carroll in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Thank you. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you Sunday morning.